question is, how did that happen? Why did that happen? Why were they rejoicing in the first place? What was really going on? What is Palm Sunday really about? Because it is a little bit more than hanging out with the little pieces of palm um, and getting them. And what I remember from Palm Sundays growing up and in church is you always made cool stuff. Some people are really good at making stuff with the palms. They could make those crosses. Uh, they made all kinds of like, little trinkets out of it and stuff. And to be honest with you, I can remember many Sunday mornings sitting in church, not having a clue as to what maybe the pastor said, but I know I played with this thing the whole time. And I'd like, try and like, you know, rip certain strands off and just play around with it. And so that's, that's what I remember about Palm Sunday. Um, but there certainly is a lot more at stake than just kind of playing with the palms. Um, it's actually right a week we just saw like filled with joy celebration, bitter betrayal, torture, a bogus trial, culminating with death on a cross, and really a fulfilled promise by the end. Um, for some children, Palm Sunday is new to them and they don't really understand it. Uh, maybe like I did growing up in the church and you know the palms, but maybe some kids don't have that experience. Um, but five-year-old Sammy did have that experience. You know about five-year-old Sammy? So five-year-old Sammy, it says, It was Palm Sunday, but because of a sore throat, five-year-old Sammy stayed home from church with a babysitter. When the family returned home, they were carrying several palm uh, fronds in their hands. Sammy uh, inquired as to what they were for. People held them over Jesus' head as he walked by, his father responded. Wouldn't you just know it, Sammy complained. The one Sunday, I don't go, and he shows up. Right? That's the funny part, right? His dad's explaining how that's like what you do at Palm Sunday, and you know, he's thinking that he missed out, and Jesus actually came, and that's what they did, right? Um, and so as you came in, right, uh, you got your palm branches, and we do this to kind of celebrate what the early Jews did when Christ was about to enter Jerusalem. And it says in Matthew, which the book that we're in, later on in Matthew, after the Sermon on the Mount part, um, it says that uh, they brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And that was kind of like a sign of royalty. You might not think of riding on the donkey as really being that impressive. Um, but he had to do it to fulfill some things that were written in the Bible in the Old Testament, and it was actually a sign of royalty, believe it or not. Um, and it says, uh, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut out branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna meaning, save us. And so you have this like very dramatic scene where he's coming into Jerusalem, a huge city, this carpenter's son, and you have everybody. It is the noise, the talk of the town. Um, and I'll pause there for a minute. Did you hear the noise as you're coming in the door over here? Did you know the talk of the town in Naugatuck right now? Naugatuck is, uh, they're competing for a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest ever kickball game, believe it or not. Yeah, so they're doing the longest ever uh, kickball game down in Linden Park. And they've been doing it since uh, Friday morning. And to set the record, I think they have to go until this morning at like, one, or this afternoon, I think until like 1 or 2 o'clock. But they're going until like 6 o'clock tonight. So they ain't camping out, playing kickball nonstop, and so they're trying to, you know, set a record for that. But that's what we hear. That's the noise and stuff that's been going on. Um, but... On Palm Sunday, with Jesus coming into town, it was a huge, huge celebration. And, you know, you got to imagine some people are kind of celebrating like, yes, this is amazing. 
Our Messiah is here, like it's actually happened. The person that we've read about in the Old Testament, he's actually coming to us, and, and here he is. He's going to come uh, on this donkey, and he's going to set us free from Rome, and he's going to make things better, and it's just an amazing time to be alive. And then some people are probably confused, like, is it really him? Is this really the Messiah coming in, like, supposed to come, you know, as like a carpenter's son, and kind of a humble guy, and I don't know, is this really him? Um, and then you have some people that are just kind of there probably to watch. You know, but that's the scene um, going on. And so we're going to pick up um, in Luke chapter 19. So you can turn there to Luke chapter 19. And the story is in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in John, it's in a whole bunch, it's in um, all the Gospels. But we're going to take a look at the one in Luke today, just because it's a little bit more detailed. Um... But still, someone might be asking or wondering, why all of the celebration, why the donkey, why the singing, why would they be chanting, save us? Like, why would they be coming in and everybody saying, save us, save us, you know, save us from what? Um, and then the other significant parts of this event is our Savior and King Jesus and his reaction to really what was going on. So as we look at Luke, which we'll read through in a minute, this morning, we're going to try and get some context and kind of get some clarification as to what is going on on Palm Sunday, and we'll take a look at two insights for us, and they're also in your bulletins too. We're going to take a look at two insights to take away from really Palm Sunday. All right, so let's take a, take a look at Luke um, 19, verse 28 is where we're going to start. So it says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. It must be kind of nice to have service like that. You know, go borrow that car, take it. If they ask about it, just say, your Lord needs it, and it will be okay. Must be kind of a nice deal. Verse 32. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. It's good enough. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And this is what they said. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And it says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You know, tell them to stop. And Jesus said, I tell you, uh, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And in verse 41, it says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. 
And so that's kind of what we're talking about this morning. It's kind of a strange story. He's coming down into it. He tells some of his followers and disciples, hey, listen, go grab that colt, that donkey. It's over there. Um, it's waiting for me. How did he know that? Well, we'll look at that in a minute. They go over there. The guy says, hey, what are you doing? He says, hey, we're taking this because it's for our Lord, our King. And um, I guess that works. They took it. And then he starts, uh, they put him on top of it as he sits on top of their cloaks, their clothing. And then you have everybody, right, waving these palms. At some churches on Sunday mornings as they line the whole outside with the kids and they do a song and they like wave the palms and stuff and then try and make believe, you know, it's like Palm Sunday to kind of reenact it. And that is the scene that is going on. And then it's kind of strange how we pick up in verse 41 where it says that like, Jesus was sad in the middle of all their celebrations. It says that he was sad. Um, and it says that he wept over it. He was like upset. There's like this huge celebration going on, really, in his name for him because they, you know, talking about the Messiah. But in the middle of that, like, he's crying. And it only says that Jesus wept really two times in the Bible. And one time was when one of his friends died. So we want to try and figure out, like, what's really going on here? This is kind of interesting. Why would he be crying? Why would they be celebrating like crazy on Sunday? And then come Friday, as a mob, they're all like, send him to the cross. Crucify him, crucify him. What happened? How did it happen? Or could we maybe be caught up in something like that? How could we guard ourselves? So we're going to take a look at some of that. So here's the first insight that I think we could take away from Palm Sunday. Um, they had a limited understanding of God's redemptive plan. And to fill in your bulletin, it says their view of the situation was incomplete and short-sighted. That's the first part. So here's like the first insight. Okay, so Jesus shows up, and he's riding in, and they're celebrating, and they're extremely excited because they believe the Messiah has really come. Their Savior is here. He showed up. They're like alive at the same time, you know, when he came. This is just, this is incredible. Incredible. Um, you could only imagine uh, what that might be like, something you've been waiting for your whole life, and then all of a sudden, like, it's happening right before your eyes. But in the middle of their celebration, like, they didn't, they were sort of right, and they were sort of wrong. Like, there's kind of a misunderstanding. And that's kind of why they end up turning on Jesus later in the week. So, what happened? Where are they coming from? Here's their mindset. Here's what they're thinking. This is why they're so excited. This is why they're so into what's going on. This is in Isaiah. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and holding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So the reason why I read that to you is because that's a passage where they held on to that one a lot. That's what the Jews were holding on to. When our Messiah comes, he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And it says he will reign on David's throne. And that's the one they were really concerned about. Because at this point in time, they didn't have their own place. I mean, you know how nice it is, uh, you know, when you first, like, start to drive. Someone got their license recently. When you first start to drive, you get some freedom. Then you finally get, like, your own house. You get some freedom, some space. These guys didn't have a country to call their own at all. And they were just waiting for that Messiah to come to set them free from the Romans who was really ruling over them. And that's what they wanted. That's what they were really looking forward to. And so now they're like, yes, finally, he's come, he's here, this has to be the Messiah, and now he's going to take over the Roman government, we'll be free, we'll be on our own. And that's what they were celebrating. That's why they were so happy about it. The only problem is, is that they missed kind of part of the story that's very important. It's certainly true that it says that the Messiah will come, will reign on David's throne, and he'll establish his kingdom, and he'll uphold it, and he'll be like a righteous ruler. Certainly true. But they missed part of the story. Because the other part of the story was talking about a prophet and a Messiah who would come, and he'd have to suffer. He would have a false trial. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, right? You remember Judas? He would have a piercing in his side. They would be gambling for his clothes at the foot of the cross. There would be darkness over the entire land. And then he'd have to rise again. So like all these things were also said in the Old Testament, but they didn't really know it was in there. Or if they knew, it wasn't really a huge focal point for them wasn't really something that they were really focused on or really concerned about. They really wanted the freedom in government. Um, and that's what they're really looking for. And I think that's something we could definitely relate to, um, being focused maybe on part of God's promises and part of what like, He wants to give to us, and maybe not recognizing all that might be at stake. Because in the Bible says, it says that so as high as from the heavens... Uh, as far as, as far and as high are the heavens from the earth, so is his ways than ours. Like you just can't really comprehend exactly what he's doing. They thought they had a really good grasp on, wow, our Savior is here. He's going to set us free. We're going to have our own country. And things are going to be great. And that's partly true. But the other part was Jesus wanted to actually set them free from that sin from that lifestyle where they grew up, where they always had to come to a temple and they had to kill an animal of some kind depending upon their sin and they had to offer that sacrifice. Where there was a lifestyle of, in order for me to talk to God, I had to go to the priest, to the holy person, and they had to talk to God for me. They could never have direct access to God. And when they approached that priest, hopefully they did the things that they were supposed to do to make themselves acceptable to the priest. And hopefully the priest made himself acceptable to God. And so you see these things that were sort of in the way as far as direct communication to God goes. And you see how they were always trying to take care of sin. Like that was the way they lived. Always trying to be clean. In the Bible you read about uncleanness and cleanness. They're trying to live a clean way. And they're trying to live a way that was acceptable to God. So Jesus does want to come. And at some point in time... Like it says in Revelation, he will certainly come and rule on this earth and his kingdom will firmly be established. 
And that would be pretty exciting when that happens. But this was kind of like the first step when he came down was to take care of the sin issue first. And they had no clue about that part. No clue about that part at all. And so on Sunday, celebrate. Hosanna, save us. We can't wait. Not save us from our sins. Not save us from ourselves and from our life. Um, but save us from the government of Rome, which would be nice, but it's not the best. Because God is always concerned with blessing us with the best in things. He wants to give us the best. And sometimes that's definitely hard to see. And the Jews had a hard time seeing that, you know, when Jesus came. And so when Thursday came, and they didn't see, like, you know, transition of power happening to the Jewish people, and they were pretty mad, and they were pretty upset about that. And they're like, you know what, this guy's a phony, he's a fake, crucify him, get rid of him, we don't want him. But little did they know, right, they're playing right into God's hands. That's what really was going on. So sometimes for us, we might have a very difficult time recognizing that God is right in the middle of fulfilling his purposes. Sometimes it's very hard to tell. We may be known sometimes to be celebrating a work of God or tremendous victory, but what we need to do is what we should do, maybe what they should have done, is to check what was going on around them, their circumstances, check it with what God's word actually says. Because if they did that, they might have been able to tell, hey, listen, yes, he's going to establish a government, but he also has to be right betrayed. He also has to die first and then rise again. Um, there has to be darkness over the land. There has to be all these things that have to happen too. So to get a good picture on that story, you have to really know what's in the word. And for us, it helps us because when we live out our days and our circumstances, right? Because this is 2011. That was way... 2012, wow. This is 2012, right? This was 2,000 years ago. So what does that really have to do with us? Well, we need to also check the Word, the Bible, with what it says, with what circumstances are going on around us. Because it might seem totally detrimental, you know, when um, a marriage is certainly struggling or almost failing. Um, when somebody passes away, when somebody gets sick. Uh, all these things certainly happen. And so what we're concerned about is what does God say about the situation? Because we don't want to just go based on our own logic because that can get us in trouble. Right? The Jewish people are kind of going based on their own logic and by the end of the week they're saying, listen, kill this guy, we're done with him. And maybe you've experienced that maybe in your own life too where it's like, geez, you know, I was really trying to follow God and you know, I've never prayed like that before, I've never read like that before. And it seems like things are just getting worse. Is that really the case? Is that really what's going on? That's why we have this, because God will communicate through us, through this word, to us. And he'll tell us what he says about a particular situation. He'll tell us how to act. There's stories in here of people who have responded well, certainly to trials and difficult things in life. And then there's also stories of people who didn't respond very well and they did it incorrectly. But the key for us as Christians, like we're learning about from Sermon on the Mount in Matthew that Jesus is talking about, is purity in heart and how to stay faithful. How can I stay faithful in the midst of this? How can I stay holy in the midst of this? How can I bring glory to God and what might be the potential dangers? 
right? There's like a whole other mindset that has to be really at place if we call ourselves Christians and we're really trying to live for God. It's not, how am I just going to make it through this? It's, God is really at work. He has a plan for me. He has a plan for this situation. How could I be holy in the middle of it? How could I maybe be a light in the middle of it? And what might God be trying to do with me in the middle of it? And maybe, if the Jewish people maybe entertain some of those questions, they might not have made really a detrimental mistake that they made on Palm Sunday. And kind of the most interesting thing is that Jesus told like his closest followers, the people that are with him, he warned them. He said, listen, um, pretty soon they're going to, you know, I'm going to be turned over to the authorities. I'm going to have to die and I'm going to have to rise again. And he kept saying it to them. And they just like, I don't know, it just didn't really connect. It didn't really hit home. Uh, they didn't really notice. And it's difficult to know why. It was probably kind of absurd to them because they're also thinking, hey, uh, you're our Messiah, you're our King, and so... Um, you know, nothing's going to happen to you. You know, we want to stand up for you and protect you. In fact, so much, when Jesus was praying in the garden before he was going to die, you know, Peter was there with his sword and he chopped off the ear of a guy who tried to grab Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. Like, this actually has to happen. So he takes the guy's ear, you know, he puts it back on the guy. Um, but it was part of the plan, part of the process. So if you are in Jesus' shoes, and you're coming into Jerusalem. You're riding this donkey. Everybody's saying, save us. They're praising you. They're celebrating you. I mean, you've got to be feeling pretty good, I would think. There's a lot of love going on right there for you. And then I would say by Friday, you probably aren't maybe feeling so good about yourself. And Jesus certainly had a security within himself as far as what God was having him to do. Because if he was really basing it on how other people were accepting him and how they were praising him, his life must have been a constant roller coaster on the inside. Because people love him one second, hate him the next, love him the next, hate him the next. And I mean, he probably should have been in an insane asylum if that was some kind of normal person. I mean, he was extremely bipolar, I would think, in that case. But he was secure in God and wanted to live for whatever God's plan and God's will was. That's all that he was about. So that's the first insight, is that the view of their situation, their view of Palm Sunday, Jesus coming in on the donkey, it was short-sighted and it was incomplete. It wasn't just about being free from Rome. It wasn't just about having a king come there and give them their own country. It was about actually saving them from their sins. That was the other big part of it. They didn't really see that part. So what's the other insight? What's the um, other part here? Jesus was weeping because of what he knew and what he saw. Right? Jesus was weeping because of what he knew and what he saw. And the blanks are there in the bulletin too. That's why he was crying. Because it seems kind of strange that you'd have like this huge celebration, you'd have all of these people praising him, Hosanna in the highest, waving palms, just a ton of just praise, and he's weeping in the middle of it. What is that about? Why is that happening? Well, he's weeping because of what he knew and what he saw. So the question is, 
What did he know? What was going on? Well, he knew that for the people that he was going to see and all the celebration, he knew it wasn't going to last very long. And he knew by Friday it was going to be a totally different story. Which kind of has me ask the question, geez, um, if I knew that somebody was going to like betray me and turn on me, I don't think I'd probably look at them with too much tender love and compassion as Jesus kind of did coming into the city. I think I might come in saying, you know what, you guys are going to turn on me. You have no idea what you're doing. Um, and maybe really lay it on them pretty thick. But that really wasn't Jesus' goal to do, was to make them feel bad about it. Because he knew they didn't really understand the whole story. They just didn't really get it. You know, it's like being a parent uh, and you see, you know, your child um, going through things that, you know, are extremely difficult to them. And it's certainly at the forefront of their mind and it dominates all of their thoughts. But you as a parent who's lived a little bit and you've seen some life and you've been around for a little while, um, you know that there's more at store and you know that there's more important things to know and experience other than what might be right in front of them. Like, you just know better. You know, you just know better. And Jesus, he knew better. He knew we were just weak, fragile people that can just be taken kind of all over the place. And he totally understood that. And he let that idea of us dominate his mind instead of the thought of us betraying him. Which is pretty incredible. Really incredible. Because I think very often we probably think of God as like this guy who's like, oh, you messed that up. Oh, you messed that up. Do that right. Get this right. Then I'll talk with you. And just this really hard-edged kind of guy. Um, not so much like that. Heart of compassion, heart of grace that I don't know if we'll ever really know the true depth of that. It's incredible. And then he calls us to also live that out as well. So... Jesus knew that their religious activity, the way that they thought they were being, you know, good Christ follow or being good Jews, it really accomplished nothing because it had no depth to it. He knew that. He knew that they were just going through the motions. They would show up uh, for, the, uh, for their feasts. They would show up to the temple, give their sacrifices. They would wear the right clothes. But other than that, did they actually go out of their way? Um, to really live for God, to actually try and purify the inside of them to their motives and their intentions, never touched there. That upset Jesus. He was weeping because he knew that he was going to get killed for sure. He didn't want to go through with that. We'll talk more about that on Easter. He was weeping because they really had no sensitivity at all for God's house, the temple. I mean, they were there really just to make money. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? Like, this is the place where you come and you worship God. And, you know, you're selling sacrifices here for, like, an exorbitant amount of money. So you get a huge profit and you make some money. He's like, that is not the place to do this. You know, and that's when he flips the table and drives them out of there the next day. And ultimately, Jesus knew that in 70 AD, the Romans would come and destroy the temple the city, and kill about 600,000 Jews. 
and Jesus didn't want that to happen. And that's why you get that weird kind of phrase at the end of that passage there. It says the day, right in verse uh, 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They would dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So God knew that was coming and that was in store for them. It would have been a much, much different story and I'm curious what the story might have been like if they actually um, accepted Jesus and really wanted to make them their king. That would be very interesting because the difficult part with that would still be Jesus would still have to die to take care of sins. So like, how would that work? You know, that would be interesting. So Jesus would said for a lot of reasons. He knew those things. And we talked about before that this was not the first time that Jesus wept. Um, he wept before uh, when his friend Lazarus died. He was close friends with Mary and Martha. And you know, you might remember the story. Um, he would frequently stop by their house and he would bring 11 of his friends and they would hang out there and they would have food and they would fellowship. And um, he knew the family well. He was a close friend in the family and Lazarus passed away. And Mary and Martha said, listen, hey, they sent the messenger. Go tell Jesus, you know, his friend, Lazarus, passed away. Jesus gets the message. Um, and then he doesn't leave right away, which is interesting. He waits a few days until he goes and sees Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then when he shows up, you can only imagine, Mary and Martha are like, you know, we sent that message a few days ago. Where were you? What happened? And there's the scene in the Bible recorded and written down of how the interaction took place. And basically, they're like, Jesus, where were you? What are you doing? I, you know, it, this is your friend. And then it says, the next sentence, it says, Jesus wept. That's it right there, right? He wept and cried. Um, because he, could, he knew the pain that they were experiencing and what they were going through. And so what does Jesus say for a reason for being late? He says, listen, I came late so that the glory of God could be revealed. And that's when he rises from the dead. You know, and then you have probably this amazing picture. We have this guy walking out of the cave, these linens on, probably half torn, everybody embracing. And I don't know, if it's you, well, I don't know, if it's me, I might be a little upset because if Lazarus was in heaven hanging out, he probably might want to hit somebody and be like, man, let me go back there, you know? But that was the scene. Jesus has that tender and compassionate heart. Not this hard edge God that just wants to do us in really at any whim. Now it is a God that calls for holiness and accountability for sure. But when we are honest before God and we are actually seeking to be the best that we can as far as Christians go, that is what he is looking for. And he is completely understanding and knows that we're going to make more failures than we do successes. For sure. Because it says that he died while we were still yet sinners on that cross. He still knew all the mistakes we were going to do. And when we give our lives to him and we say, Jesus, come and live in my heart. I give my life to you. After that moment, we're still going to make a ton of mistakes and have sin in there. And God knew that was going to happen. And it's just amazing that, you know, somebody would love us in that way. Especially, God would love us in that way. 
So he was weeping because of what he knew and what he saw, all that stuff that was going on around them. And that kind of compassion that he has for us, I think just really drives home one point that hopefully we don't miss at all, which is the fact that he truly understands us. Understands us and he understands how we feel. So, right at the bottom there, it says, what are two, re- two prayer requests that I could take away from this Sunday, from Palm Sunday? Two prayer requests. Well, I'd hope that one of them would be, God, help me not to have a view of situation that is short-sighted and incomplete. I hope that would be one prayer. Right? Because that was, like, obviously the big mistake that the Jews were making. It was really a celebration of misunderstanding. Like, they, they really just didn't get it. They really didn't understand what they were going on or what they were celebrating. And they were kind of half right and they were kind of half wrong. And the half wrong part kind of did them in in the end. So hopefully that's one, one prayer request. Ask God, be like, God, help me not to view things short-sighted and incomplete. Help me not to just see things that are going on in my life for what they are, but let me actually see things as a whole balanced with what's in here. Let me actually know what's in here. And in 2012, we really don't have a lot of really great excuses, at least here in America. We don't have a lot of great excuses as far as not knowing what's in here. And so when we get up to heaven, and we're standing before God, and we've got to give an account for our lives, we should know Him, and we should know heaven pretty well, I should think. It might be very, very different for maybe the family, the kid that's growing up in a rainforest somewhere who's never even had a Bible ever, who's never even heard of Jesus. That would be a different conversation where I can guarantee God would be more than fair. But for us, we have this. Like, we have the entire word. We have what the messengers have said. We have what the prophets have. Um, We have tremendous Bible speakers and commentators and you know, all kinds of guys on TV and all kinds of articles. We have the internet. I mean, stuff is everywhere. We can choose to balance our thinking with the Word, if we want to, if it's that important to us. Or we could just be really consumed with our own lives and not spend time with that. So that could certainly be one prayer request. Um, God, help me not to be short-sighted and incomplete with my thinking and with your plan. And maybe one other prayer request is to have God implant His eyes and His heart into our hearts for other people. That kind of tenderness, that kind of compassion is what we're called to have. And some people, I completely understand, you know, they just, uh, they're not really a lovey-dovey type person. They didn't really grow up around it. In fact, it makes them pretty uncomfortable. And that's okay, and that we're not called to be super lovey-dovey around all kinds of other people and always express it and hug them and grab them, you know. But there should be a place somewhere in our hearts where in some situations and circumstances we do feel some, like, tenderness and compassion towards other people. How we express it might be different for sure, but it should be there. And hopefully for you... I mean, suffering is not too far from us. It certainly is not. It's around us uh, at work. It's around us with our friends. And 
hopefully we've actually felt it like Jesus has for sure. Um, you talk to sometimes one of the spiritual gifts, certainly, uh, is intercessory prayer, which means like praying on the behalf of other people. And some of those intercessory prayer people that have that gift where they just, they just have a desire for some reason, and it's really from God, God put it there, but they have a desire to pray for other people, for sometimes other countries, for other families, um, for friends. And when they engage in prayer for that person, what happens is uh, they tend to get extremely just like really tender, uh, compassionate. They just have like a supernatural ability to kind of really sense and feel with that person and almost like get a piece of God's heart towards that person. It's amazing how that happens. And some people have that to varying degrees or some people are just like, if you've ever been around them, they're just like, oh my gosh, they always seem like very heavy burdened and stuff. And it's like, oh my goodness, you know, maybe you need to like relax a little bit. But um, they're very familiar with sorrow and they understand people's hearts. But then there's some people who could really care less. And they're like, you know what? If they're hurt and they're suffering, they probably brought it upon themselves. Um, I'm just going to try and be careful. And that's certainly not like the life that we want to live. Because when we're standing before Jesus, he's going to say, listen, you know, how did suffering affect you? When people were around you and they were suffering and they were having a difficult time, how did it affect you? How did you feel about it? You know, and if our answer is, well, they probably brought it on themselves, so maybe they got what was coming to them. I don't know if God's going to be real happy with that one, you know? He's looking for tender and compassionate Christians that show his love to other people, and that's what Jesus said. That's how people will even know that we are Christians. It's not going to be by how much of this we know. I mean, this is not a knowledge thing. This is actually living it out and doing it. Right? The Pharisees, the Jewish people, the religious leaders in this day, they had it down, they knew it well, inside and out. Nobody knew it better than them. The only problem is it didn't go 18 inches. Right? It didn't go from the head to the heart. Never made that trip. They never really put it into practice. And that's what we're called to do. Right? God um, said that. People would know we are Christians by the way that we love other people. So certainly I think Palm Sunday helps put into perspective how we just have to have a balanced view as far as what's going on in relation to our circumstances. And then it also gives us a view of God's heart towards us and how much He cares about us, how in the middle of a celebration He can be concerned with us and our hearts and how we might be reacting later. You know, he just wept at it. And part of that certainly has to be um, in our lives. And so what we're going to do is we're going to close with uh, one song, a hymn, uh, Be Thou My Vision. And the words are great um, because really it's just asking for like God just to become a greater part within us. So we could see him better, see him more clearly, and where it just like influences everything that we do. So we'll sing that together.